Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So, welcome to the Simulcast Journal Club for February 2022. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? I am really good. It's so good to join you again, uh, particularly after catching up with you last week. So looking forward to some really fun articles to start 2022. I know. The General Club will be alive and well. And just while we're doing that, Simulcast listeners, uh, as we always say, we're happy to have suggestions from anyone. If you want to send us a message via our website or DM Ben and I on Twitter, we're very happy to consider any articles people are interested in. But failing that, we've got four good ones that we picked. So we will get on with them. Hey, Ben. Sounds good. All right, so the first article that I'm going to do really centers on the idea about calling for help by uh, junior medical staff. And the title of the paper is A Mixed Method Study of Senior Medical Student Help Calling in an Individual Acute Care Simulation Experience. And this is from Simulation in Healthcare in December 2021. And it's from Tim Young et al., uh, a group based at Loma Linda in California, USA. And the background to this, uh, Ben, and this is no surprise, it's a big conversation, I think, in critical care and in hospital uh, medicine, uh, in that calling for help is an important task for healthcare providers of all sorts. And we know that there's uh, failure for call for help causes issues with patient safety, and they often come up in uh, adverse event analyses. Now, you would think SIM might help, but the point of this article is that maybe and maybe not, because the point really is that uh, calling for help, while sometimes viewed as a skill, is actually underpinned by a lot more complex factors. So thinking about when to call for help, how to call for help, and what kind of help you're calling for. So what did this team do? Well, they describe running a simulation, an acute care skill simulation experience, and they ran this for 134 final year medical students. And this is probably something that, Ben, I would say is pretty familiar to many of us designing some scenarios and the four that they had here would be fairly uh, recognizable to critical care people. Let me just get them here. An acute fluid overload, hypoglycemic seizure, epidural hematoma, and anaphylactic shock. Now, importantly, these medical students entered into these scenarios as individuals. They were given a handover about all four patients, and then they managed two of them in sequence who deteriorated with one of those problems. And they were actually given some help to manage this deterioration. It seems like there was at least one um, nurse in the room as an embedded participant. And they had a little card, which was called, I think, a badge buddy, which said in pretty big words, call for help after you've done your initial ABC. And their evaluation was of two sorts. One was they just quantitatively measured did these uh, medical students call for help in the first five minutes. But then they actually did a qualitative analysis as well um, through some surveys about some of the things that influenced calling for help. What were the barriers? What were the positives, negatives um, of calling for help? Uh, so, Ben, you'd have to say this is a pretty common simulation setup, isn't it? I think you and I have probably seen many places that do this kind of sim. Yeah, 100%. And I, and I don't think it was super subtle. Like you mentioned the the car that has call for help in bold and like 
20 times larger font than anywhere else. But I also loved that the acronym above that was IOMG. So it was like, <laughs> it's, it's pretty <laughs> clear signaling, I think. Um, but yeah, I think this would be a very common, uh, kind of simple sim to try and, uh, educate junior doctors about how to call for help. Yeah, and just for listeners, the IOMG actually stands for intravenous access, oxygen, monitors, and glucose, but I agree. I think there was some play on the millennials' use of those particular uh, acronyms in texting. So uh, what did they come up with? Well, interestingly, on that quantitative measure of did people call for help, most of the students did what we might predict, which is they didn't call for help in the first scenario, but after they had the debrief and they did their second scenario, they did call for help because the debrief seemed full of make sure you call for help when you're confronted with these emergencies. So that was 60% of the students. Interestingly, um, about 22% of students called for help in both scenarios within five minutes. 14% didn't call for help in either scenario despite after the first one getting what sounds like a very pointed debrief, which is you should call for help when you're in one of these scenarios and you're uh, an intern, you will need help. So this was pretty interesting and, of course, quite rightly, and I think the authors mentioned that they were motivated by the fact that having run something similar to this simulation a few times before, they were seeing that in practice interns weren't doing this. So I think this prompted this study to explore this deeper uh, reasons about what happened. And and I would say people in practice won't be too surprised by the themes, but I'll just go through them. The first was, and I think this is pervasive, that the students sought to avoid shame and burdening their team. And this was particularly so because they did look at the non-callers and the callers for help, but particularly the non-callers had all sorts of things about how they should be able to handle it they don't want to bother someone, it will be seen as a failure on their part. That's not that surprising. But then I think as simulation educators, there's a couple of other themes that are really important to us. The first is that people's prior experience of simulation, and in particular simulation being a test, and also simulation being traditionally a place where you push your boundaries and you don't get help, that that actually imprinted the help calling behavior in not a very good way. And that students were saying things like, oh, we're allowed to call for help because they previously hadn't done in their simulations. And I think we've got to take really careful notice of this as a potential negative training outcome. Uh, the other themes were that this seemed to have a very individual lens, and I would see this as I would, being interested in teams, as a critical flaw in this kind of sim design. Like how can you train one side of a conversation to call for help? if you're not also training the other side of the team who should be listening to the help calling. Uh, the other themes were that students tended to overestimate how hard it was to call for help. And I think, to be honest, I think that contributed a bit to the unreality for me because when I look at those scenarios, they would be automatically met called at my hospital and the intern would have no discretion about whether they were calling for help or not. It would be a mandatory call. And uh, the last theme was it's not real. Um, and, and they made reference here to the fact that this was – there wasn't a team here where there normally would be. So I don't know about you, Ben. My thoughts about this is it raises really important questions about the design and delivery of simulation focused on this calling for help and juniors calling for help. I think it risks being performative that people just go, oh, yeah, here I am in the sim and I've got a call for help. Um, it's possibly harmful because it sets students up for this idea that they're pushing boundaries and calling for help will be a failure. 
And I, I think it really means that these kind of simulations have to be designed in the full cognizance of the complexity of the team environment and the culture. And to ignore that and just pretend that this is a skill uh, is probably the wrong thing to do. So I've got a few strong feelings about it. But uh, what did you think, Ben? Yeah, look, I actually had lots of strong feelings reading this article too. Uh, not because of the article itself, because I really enjoyed particularly the qualitative stuff that they brought up. Um, but really for me, it actually really broke my heart because the opinions of these med students actually just brought me back to my own internship where I really, really struggled in a big tertiary hospital at accessing help when I needed it to the point where I think it actually heavily influenced me to go to pediatrics uh, where I felt much safer. And I just feel like nothing has changed. We're still raising these kids to believe that they either need to be individual heroes or that they not don't actually, or they still feel like not knowing something means you should be ashamed uh, and mm-hmm. then when somebody is sick, that actually the solution to that is just to go one rudder, one sort of rudder up the hierarchy uh, and go mm. one step up the chain rather than actually valuing the contributions of a large team of multidisciplinary people. And I love that right. some of the analysis highlighted how people were just thinking about getting a senior and not actually valuing a whole team approach. I do think for me, you know, um, made me reflect particularly from some of our previous conversations that the sim probably isn't the best way to train people to call for help anyway specifically because of that conundrum where you want to push people to their limits and then they call for the consultant and then you come up with some garbage excuse about why help can't come like i'm really sorry but so and so is the consultant on today and they're actually at home and their car broke down and also they're a werewolf and it's the full moon tonight so they have to stay in and they email the roster clerk but he's on unpaid leave after a back injury so they didn't change the roster etc etc right and it happens all the time so we train them to feel like they have to cope and then debrief them about why they didn't call um and i thought the article acknowledges that in a great way so i think there's lots of good learning but it just highlights to me that culture is king with this stuff you know Mm -hmm. um why did i know that in peds emergency somebody had my back every moment of the shift and why did i know that in an adult mental health unit separated from the rest of the hospital that when the psych reg said you're the medical rmo you sort it out that even though help was actually available, if I just accessed it, that I was unable to at the time. Um, and so it sort of broke my heart that this stuff is still such a significant problem. And I thought this article nutted out some of that qualitative reasoning really, really nicely. Um, but I don't think SIM is the solution to that problem. I feel like they could have had a 45-minute chat and potentially come to a better understanding or learn some new values. Yeah, because you think about how resource-intensive running this number of simulations for mm. individual medical students at a time, it would be enormous. And and I don't know that we're achieving what we set out to achieve, and certainly the author's experience seems to duplicate that. Uh, but you're right, I think it's an issue of culture. But the other thing is, having read a little bit about shame, like that theme, shame, that's, that is one of the most pervasive uh, influences on psychology here so i think there's sort of two takeaways for me to build on yours one is yeah we've got to be really thoughtful if we're going to be thinking about simulation that incorporates this calling for help message and um, as they say in their paper um, have very developmentally appropriate sims and see them as a bridge to the teamwork rather than um, a heroic task on their own but i've got to say speaking of slight dismays and one who is attached to a medical school I also thought it was such a comment on the rest of our training and enculturation as medical students and junior doctors. And 
you know, sim was then somehow it became the front point, became the obvious symptom of where the problem was. But in fact, the issue was much deeper down where we start in first and second year saying, how are you going to solve this patient's problem? And everything is positioned as an individual problem solving activity for the medical student. So there are definitely positive lessons here, but I think it's once again encouragement to be really thoughtful about what we're doing and to know that what we do can have hidden curricular messages that are not as positive as we'd like. Hmm. Anyway, thank you so much to the team who did it because that's the spotlight we need. Agreed, and I really love the humility uh, and thoughtful approach that was taken with this paper. I thought it was fantastic. Hmm. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. All right. Well, from there, Ben, you're going to tell us about a very uh, wholesome app that we might use for pediatric resuscitation. I am. So I was really fascinated by this. So the article I want to talk about is uh, called Lessons from the Design, Development and Implementation of a Three-Dimensional Neonatal Resuscitation Training Smartphone Application, Life-Saving Instruction for Emergencies or the Life App. And it was written by Wanyama et al. and published in Advances in Simulation 2022. So... Hot off the press for everybody. Thank you, Simulcast. So, look, this article uh, really describes utilizing smartphone apps to distribute neonatal resuscitation education to a very widely dispersed and often under-resourced and relatively under-trained populace of frontline healthcare workers in sub-Saharan Africa. And it really appealed to me for a couple of reasons. One is I spent some time just playing with the app and I was actually really, really impressed with it. Uh, it's very slick. It's well designed. It's open access on the play, Google Play and the iPhone store. And the virtual sims provider gives some really great opportunities for mental rehearsals of neonatal resus principles for healthcare providers who are new to neonatal resus or for those who are needing some spaced repetition to refresh their skills. Um, and this was really exciting for me because to be honest, a lot of healthcare apps suck i think uh they're often pretty ugly the programming's pretty janky they just don't have a great feel which is really a harsh and unfair thing to say because they often don't have the budgets that larger apps with broader audiences get to you know get to invest in but the asynchrony between downloading a really slick app for or game versus uh you know a janky sort of healthcare app made in-house is often pretty jarring as a user so i was just really really impressed by this and secondly i guess with my work with stork where we try to distribute a lot of open access materials to regional healthcare educators we spent a fair amount of time designing our e-learning and so i love that they shared their process in the hope of helping others learn from their experience uh, anyways, back to the article. So to give you a bit of background for those of you who aren't pediatricians, basically the day you are born and then the month or so after that are statistically the riskiest time of your childhood. And in fact, this article states that 47% of deaths under five occur in that first month of life. Yeah. So flat babies needing simple resuscitation measures are actually born all the time and it can go wrong quite quickly. But if this all sounds scary, then the great thing is that most babies do completely fine with a series of really simple structured measures, particularly things like drying, stimulation, and sometimes some ventilation and very occasionally CPR. They do very well usually with very simple things. And I think that's why this app works so well. So equipping regional teams with those skills can potentially have a huge impact on individual cases and ideally, you know, hopefully on regional perinatal mortality. 
So the authors of this article describe a five-day program called ETAP Plus, which has trained uh, face-to-face over 10,000 healthcare providers about neonatal resuscitation. But they do acknowledge that there are still barriers to getting folks in regional areas trained. And, you know, as you know, Vic, five-day courses are pretty hard to get frontline healthcare workers to. And so we often have this tension between educational depth and the optimal sort of length of time and cost that we can provide without taking staff away from the coalface. So as an adjunct to that course, both as course prep and opportunities for spaced repetition, this app was designed. And the authors give a really lovely breakdown of the developmental models that they used. And they describe a human-centered design model, which basically involves seven steps, which they define as empathize, define, ideate, prototype, test, and innovate, with repeated cycles of review within each step. And then the authors highlight uh, the importance of early user and expert engagement, similar to the lessons that we've learned from recent publications on translational sim in many ways. A little more. Oh, you've got some thoughts. Oh, I just wanted to highlight that because I agree. I think it's really a strength of the paper here, uh, the description of their human-centered design approach. And they even quote Don Norman of the Norman Doors uh, and really thinking about how that works and and not being a paediatric emergency physician, uh, I didn't do the neonatal scenario, I just did the younger child with the pneumonia, I thought that was more in my uh, wheelhouse but I couldn't fault it like you, it sort of starts with how do you wash your hands, it gets you actually to make sure you wash your hands at the sink and do it properly and then you go and assess the child and then you've got a range of things to do and, and I just thought this works heaps better than a lot more fancy uh, online materials and scenarios that I've seen. So I couldn't agree with you more. And so I think this piece about how they put it together so it really was uh, user-focused um, is a super important part of this article. Yeah, agreed. It's really nice. Um, they also describe some terminology in corporate sort of programming strategies that we might be less frequently familiar with in healthcare literature. So they talk about a scrum model um, and break down important take-homes about key features of effective team development. Uh, Practical things like deciding on one consistent software choice for communication and then uh, allocating distinct but interrelated tasks to team members. And they also talk about uh, things like finance, but particularly finance through the lens of How do you fund something when any cost to the end user constitutes a barrier to uptake? Uh, So a lot of learning here presented in a really lovely way. The article closes with some impressive numbers. They've had 6,000 downloads to date, which is fantastic. And the authors are clearly looking to continue to publish and analyze the app's impact. So while there's not much analysis of that in this article specifically, I get the feeling that they're looking into it and, you know, consistent with this type of advancing simulation practical uh, practice article type, there's much to learn here from just reading their experience without necessarily having to have a huge sort of quantitative research project behind it. A well done team. I just really wanted to give them a shout out and I was very impressed. Yeah, absolutely. And I would agree with you, uh, again, as a process thing, them outlining their project management approach, because I think that is often a foreign concept to frontline clinicians, uh, and yet well known by heaps of other people in the world. And they even take us through that step. So it's not even just the human centered design principles, but then how does it actually work in practice with a group of people who are well motivated, want to well clinically informed, but don't really know how to work together to produce something like this. Uh, so I would agree. And I did find it's still in beta in the 
iOS app, so you're better off Googling about the Life app and finding it, and then you can download it. That's what I found anyway. How did you go downloading it? Uh, yeah, I didn't have any troubles in the Play Store, so okay. it worked well on my mm. Samsung. Mm. Yeah. And little yeah. little things, like we were talking about negative training with the previous thing, but uh, the simple fact that when you washed your hands, uh, they didn't name it, but you sit there for the recommended period of time watching an animation very thoroughly go over the right type of technique to wash your hands, and it doesn't let you skip it. Like it, it, it makes you mentally rehearse that this is the time that you need to spend. It was really nice. Mm. I know. I went to skip it and then, oh, you can't no, skip it. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really cool. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, uh, shout out. I would agree with that. So next paper, a little different in its focus. Uh, this is really about simulation fellowships and the broad topic of accreditation. So the title of the paper is Accreditation of Simulation Fellowships and Training Programs, More Checkboxes or Elevating the Fear Field. And this is from a pretty diverse group, but led by Rami Ahmed, uh, also from Simulation and Healthcare in 2021. And I think it invites us to go back and, and think a little bit about this concept of who is a simulation fellow. Uh, we've certainly heard as part of the maturation of the field of healthcare simulation that we want to be able to train people. Uh, uh, we need specialized practitioners. Uh, we want good and consistent training. So we're going to have these fellowships. And they outline fairly clearly that there's uh, 65 training programs in the US at least uh, at the time of their putting their paper together. But they're very varied in their format, their length, the way that they're attached to universities or to health services. And so the question that this paper focused on is whether accreditation is the answer. Now, how did they go about answering this question? Well, it's a bit of a novel format, although not the first time I've seen this kind of format. And I'm going to quote from them here. The article is a report on the proceedings of a spirited debate at IMSH 2020. That's the big US healthcare conference about whether accreditation of SIM fellowships is a good idea. So, uh, and they outline this by sort of describing some of that background to simulation fellowships. And again, for people who are new to this, this is a very diverse concept because you may have people from different healthcare professions. They might be training for quite different roles, whether that's leading a sim uh, service or leading a sim uh, center, or whether it's someone who merely wants to be good at debriefing or whether it's someone who's got a more technical outcome. So you start to realize this is not a one-size-fits-all, and I think this is where the challenges start. So they really just present the paper in two broad categories, uh, the people who argued for accrediting fellowships and the second who argue against it. And the people who say it's a good idea say this is a logical next step in any field's maturation. It's a way to get external recognition, and they actually do quite a good granular comparison with emergency medicine, which is a in the scheme of things, relatively new specialty and accreditation of training programs was a big step in those processes of maturation and external recognition. And they suggest that accreditation processes can then support innovation and change and growth because you're having people come and ask questions about why you do what you do. So you think, oh, yeah, why do we do that? And maybe are prompted to review that and get quite disciplined about reflecting on that. Uh, and they offer some little case studies that show that, you know, this essentially might help us having a consistency of end product, as it were, of simulation fellowship. 
But then quite rightly, as they present the counterpoints, they say, look, particularly for small programs, there's a lot of cost in any accreditation, so it's a big administrative burden. And then one of the um, issues is that there's a, because of this diversity of programs, there's a lack of equity and that certainly there's no doubt medicine fellowships tend to be better um, supported. There's more of them, whereas those for other professions often aren't as well supported. And it may just be that these are unrealistic expectations for some and we get the age-old question is some training uh, as good as accredited training or should you abandon it if you can't live up to the standards set by some other group so for me ben i guess it really comes down to what do we mean by the concept of accreditation i think the idea of having effective review and suggestions for improvement in a training program is always a good thing but that can go too far as we've seen with any accreditation program uh, programs and I think to me this is the this is the flip side of all the advantages of being a very cross-disciplined field and suddenly we find ourselves are we going to be accredited by medical colleges or are you going to be accredited by a simulation uh, society uh, who even knows who's the right person to do this so very nice canvassing of the issues uh, but very very couched in terms of their outcomes I would say yeah, agreed. It was very, very neutral. It was sort of here is the pros and cons list that's generated more questions than answers, which, you know, I, don't, I think is fair. Like, I don't, you know, they, I think they were clear that there was not a consistent agreement reached at the meeting. So I guess it would sort of be overreach of the authors if they tried to come up with one on their own, uh, in conflict with what actually happened at the meeting. It reminded me a little bit, I think, um, one of the first papers we looked at was about deception in sim, and they summarized a similarly uh, spirited debate uh, back in the day. Um, I did sort of love, you know, for me, where I sat was that there was a lovely quote about the fact that from the front, front lines, there was thought that there is a need for at least best practice guidelines rather than governance or regulation. And that, that really struck me, and particularly with, the, you know, things like the consort and uh, strobe, statements previously that actually you can make an aspirational document that doesn't necessarily um, become a prohibitive cost to people uh, trying to improve their service and maybe that's a gentler place to start. Yeah, I agree and I know that some of the authors of this paper are also working on some of those things like trying to define some of the domains of practice for uh, simulation practitioners and I think that is all good work to do and it helps us decide what it is we would accredit and how because uh, I think just sort of saying a sim fellow job I certainly know from my own experience here in Australia um, there are emergency medicine college accreditation processes for uh, the special skills posts that we have doctors who are in some of these sim fellow roles but that then does preclude some of those jobs being filled by nurses, interestingly. And I know that we are not the only people to have confronted that uh, situation. So many, many little complexities. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's tricky stuff. Um, I could certainly see both sides, although I'm, I'm more for the best practice guidelines. I've really enjoyed those, both with the um, simulated patient groups as well as their consort and strobe. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. 
All right. And then, uh, yeah, you've got now something really, well, it was left field for me. It's clearly not for the people researching in this area, but uh, I think it'll be quite an eye-opener for our uh, simulcast listeners. I thought this was fascinating. I loved it. It was, you know, 50% of the paper I didn't really understand because it was equations, but but, <laughs> but uh, the rest of it I loved. So this title, this article is called Synchronization of Pupil Dilations Correlates with Team Performance in a Simulated Laparoscopic Team Coordination Task. And it was by Wenjing Hei et al. and published in Simulation in Healthcare, December 2021. So look, we have talked over the years, Vic, about how to effectively measure team performance. And I have to say from reflection, mostly the articles we've seen that look at this take the approach of, you know, you either get a team of experts together and you define what good looks like, or you analyze good teams and you create a checklist from an amalgamation of the positive features of their performance and validate it. But as this article points out, much of the research into effective teamwork really focuses on relatively subjective measures rather than objective measures, which might be fine, but wouldn't it be nice if there was a troponin level for teamwork? Uh, and the authors of this article think that maybe measuring the synchronicity of team members' pupil dilation might be key to measuring teamwork performance, at least when it comes to surgical tasks specifically. So they give some fascinating... Can I just stop here for a minute? Because when I saw that, I thought, this must be a Christmas edition. This has got to be a joke. Like, honestly, that's how ignorant I was about this field of endeavor. So I'm just going to put it out there. Yeah, look, this eye tracking stuff is really, really fascinating. And I think we're going to see more... I mean, these guys have published... They quote their own research here, and they've clearly published a fair amount of it already. But I think we're going to see more and more as this uh, software and the tracking systems are becoming uh, pretty affordable. So they give some fascinating background, including their own prior research here. Uh, they talk about how Jiang et al. explored how pupil diameter responded to difficulties with surgical tasks under laparoscopic settings. Uh, that the authors found that higher task requirements evoked larger pupil dilation. And this one really fascinated me. It was another study that showed that speakers and listeners have synchronized pupil dilation patterns during narrative which reflected shared attention. Uh, and I remember now, I think reading through Thinking Fast and Slow with Daniel Kahneman as well, there's a lovely quote from him about, you know, trying to make yourself do a complicated maths question and look at your pupils in front of the mirror. And you can pretty quickly see that uh, increased mental effort leads to dilation. So they reference a fair few papers as, as well that clearly reflect that analysis of eye movements and dilation can inform our understanding of human cognition, which is fascinating to me because it's such a binary sounding signal. You know, there's, there's really only two things that can happen. It gets broader or it gets more narrow. Uh, so the question for this paper was basically, does the synchronicity of pupillary dilation between two surgical colleagues who are doing a laparoscopic procedure correlate with teamwork effectiveness? And I thought they did this in a pretty clever way. So they took 14 subjects, put them in dyad teams, and they had to perform a simulated laparoscopic object transportation task with very clear success criteria that's easy to measure. 
So basically there's this box and you got one person maneuvering the camera, one person maneuvering sort of the gripper, and you have to pick up objects, move them around different areas in the box and attach them to different pins in different locations. And they weren't allowed to talk, so they eliminated verbal uh, noise from this study. And it's basically, you know, that, that is a test that's been validated previously to assess laparoscopic performance. And this is clearly from the article, a very important surgical skill and a surgical teamwork skill to be able to work together, maneuvering both camera and equipment to ensure that you're uh, getting to the right area that the surgeon who's doing the cutting can see the right thing in the most optimal way. Uh, and so both team members, pupil dilation and eye gaze were tracked simultaneously during the procedure. And they used visit video analysis to look at key moments with the tasks. Now, because the performance time and the number of drops were easy to measure, you could pretty easily divide up the teams into who was high performance, medium and low performance groups. And then you could compare the synchrony of their eye movements and dilation within those groups. And basically for me, a lot of the rest of the paper is some very smart looking algorithms about how to work all this out. But long story short is that high performing teams did have significantly more synchrony of their pupillary dilation, which supports the hypothesis that dilation can be used as an objective measure of teamwork in this setting. Did you have any thoughts? Oh, so many. Mm. I mean, I think you're right. And I think that, that piece where we didn't let them talk to each other, that's something that I suppose I would use language like high levels in implicit communication, which makes sense that that is a high-performing team who can manage to do that. I thought they had some lovely phrases in here that helped me understand uh, the um, way that they'd put the paper. A, a shared perception of task workloads in synchronized manner in high-performing teams, and I think that really helps and they actually use this term team neurosynchrony which is something i hadn't really thought that there could be such a i guess objective quantitative measure of some of these teamwork performance and i also wanted to just read from the paper here because they do come to some point where there may be some people going well hang on why do you do this is how, how useful is this and they say the answer lies in the ability to measure cognitive demand more directly rather than inferring it from observation of behavior and i think we do need some of these quantitative measures to match our evolving and now quite high level qualitative methods for studying some of these teamwork behaviors so i just thought it was so interesting i thought it was a great example of how to use simulation as a test bed um, and i think it just opens our eyes to the uh, neuroscience of teamwork which i feel like i need to do some more reading about yeah, 100%. And I just, like, I didn't care if they couldn't just <laughs> that this was useful. <laughs> I found it so fascinating. Too interesting. Well, it's just like, um, it fascinates because I love learning about the ways we connect and signal each other at a biological level that we don't really consciously register or comprehend. Um, and I also love this idea that you could potentially objectively zoom in on someone's eyes and detect that maybe in a, you know, in a, sophisticated analysis of a high performance team that someone's looking like this is really easy for them and they're actually clearly working much harder to cope with than we realize um so i really enjoyed thinking about this sort of you know less commonly discussed components of teamwork as well like obviously this will be well known in surgical circles but to me the, to think about sort of this laparoscopic what do they call it neuroharmony um yeah is uh it was a really fascinating highlight to me and it was just just felt like it was it was uh 
almost poetic in its sort of very mathematical look at how we connect with each other in some ways. I really enjoyed it. I know, and all those horrible stereotypes about surgeons, and really they're into the neuroharmony. Yeah, they're just quietly sitting there synchronizing their pupils. It's beautiful. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I really, really loved it. And I, I, but I think on that point I agree with you. I, I think I just felt very uh, jealous of uh the depth of understanding about expert performance in surgery that I do not feel like those of us um, have achieved in our in the cognitive domains of our practice. So I'm uh, very highly impressed. Agreed. Mm. All right, well, four interesting articles. Thank you, Ben. Uh, I think you take the credit for picking most of these and uh, I think a good way to start the year with February Journal Club. And again, just a reminder for our simulcast listeners, we'll have the links to these papers up on the uh, website for you to look at as well as any other thoughts that we've got uh, happy to take suggestions anytime and we'll give some shout outs to people who do suggest things or comment at any time so don't forget www.simulationpodcast.com for anything else well ben thanks again so much for another journal club thanks that was super fun i really enjoyed those i'll see you next month thank you for listening to simulcast <laughs>